We're in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. Well, we are uh, deep into our series. We started in July 2017 on the Gospel of Luke. And rumor has it we're going to try to finish in January. <laughs> we'll see <laughs> uh, if we get there. But today uh, uh, we are looking at Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 23. Luke 22, verses 1 through 23. I'm going to read it aloud. If you could follow along with me, and then we'll pray. Luke 22, verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Okay, let's pray. We've got a lot of work to do. Father, thank you for this work we get to do. The work of uh, learning from your word. The work of listening. The work of reading. The work of interpreting and applying. Lord, may all of us be doing this this morning, not just me. And Lord, I pray that for me that you would um, help me to be clear. And Lord, that your Holy Spirit would take these words and apply them to each of our hearts individually. There are so many different things going on in different lives here, but I, I believe this word is a word for all of us. So Lord, help us to, to learn this. And Lord, thank you that today we actually get to put into practice your word by taking the Lord's Supper at the end of the service. Lord, thank you for this opportunity. We pray for our brothers and sisters uh, in the Garden Grove, Anaheim area right now who are meeting to praise you and to worship you. We pray for Bible-believing churches to preach with power today and that many would be reached with good news. Amen. Okay, well, we have been moving through this book, like I said, since last July. And we have uh, been speeding up or slowing down at just certain times. Uh, but now we reach the climax. You know, here we are at the climax. It's that part of the story, the part of the novel, the part of the movie uh, where everything begins to move quickly 
towards the climax, and this is where it begins. For the last several chapters, we've actually been in the last week of Jesus' life. So we have been slowing down and looking at all the things that happened in what is commonly called Passion Week or Holy Week. Uh, This last week of Jesus' life that began with um, his entrance into Jerusalem on a donkey and now is headed toward the Passover meal. So you have some notes in front of you, Lord willing, and we've got a bunch of verses to cover, and I think that there will be plenty here for us. And this is an exciting thing because, uh, like I said, we get to put it into practice uh, here with the elements uh, at the end of the service. So point number one in your notes is opposition to Jesus is both natural and supernatural. Opposition to Jesus is both natural and supernatural. Here in the first six verses, we see men conspiring to put Jesus to death. We also see Satan entering into a man in order to make this happen. And so I want us to to notice that the chief priests and the scribes are not actively seeking Satan in order to do this. Um, They are God's chosen people. They believe themselves to be following God's word. And yet Satan here uh, will enter one of Jesus' closest followers. And those who were supposed to uh, be so um, familiar with God's word that they would know God himself are so far away that they would put his very son to death. And so we start with verse 1. talks about, we have two things mentioned. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then Luke says, which is called the Passover. Again, Luke is probably writing for a Gentile audience. Um, some of whom may be familiar with the Jewish customs, but probably most don't. And so Luke actually throughout his book spends lots of time explaining some of these Jewish customs so that the people would understand. How many of you have celebrated a Passover Seder? Can I see your hands? Okay, a good chunk of you have. All right. Um, that's good. That'll, that'll help you remember some of these things. The Passover Seder is a good thing for, for us to look at. Well, the caution is that many of those traditions stem from the centuries after Jesus. And so we're not exactly sure how it was practiced at the time of Jesus. But several of the traditions in the Seder are taken from the Old Testament. So uh, if they're not exactly accurate, they are fairly close to the original. And we'll also see here in uh, the Gospel of Luke, and you can look in Matthew's account, Mark's account, and John's account for some other details that are mentioned. Uh, The Passover remembers and celebrates God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. In fact, it is the greatest salvation event in Israel's history. It's repeated throughout um, the rest of the Old Testament after Exodus, repeatedly in the prophets, in the Psalms, even in the wisdom literature. There are repeated mentions of the Passover. Even in First and Second Kings, there are times when the nation of Israel comes back to God. And one of the ways you know they've done that is by celebrating the Passover. King Hezekiah leads the people back to celebrating the Passover. King Josiah also leads people back to celebrating the Passover. And by the time of Jesus, Passover and unleavened bread kind of got smashed together, which is easy to understand because Passover was a one-day celebration followed by a week-long celebration. And so it began to be, uh, a Feast of Unleavened Bread could cover Passover and the feast. Passover could cover the whole feast and the, the Passover. So they basically were interchangeable terms at this point. But this was um, one of the high points of the Jewish calendar. This looked back on the time of the 10th plague when God freed his people from the land of Egypt. So remember um, in the book of Exodus that the children of Israel are slaves. 
in Egypt. They cry out to God, and God frees them through Moses and Aaron. And he does so with ten plagues. And each of the first nine, Pharaoh says he'll let them go. And then he changes his mind, hardens his heart, and keeps the children of Israel. The tenth plague is um, the worst. It's a horrific plague. And um, in it, God gave his people a way of deliverance, a way of salvation. The plague was that the firstborn of all the families and of all of their animals as well um, would die if there was not blood put on the doorposts of their homes. And so Moses gave all of the children of Israel uh, the directions to slaughter a one-year-old lamb, actually to take it into their home a few days before, then to slaughter it and take some of the blood and to post it on top of their door frames and on the sides of their door frames. And the picture there, of course, is, is for the children of Israel to understand that the blood of the lamb covers them, right? As they walk into their house, the blood of the lamb covers them. And when God came to inspect Egypt, when he saw the blood, he passed over that house. And so the, the oldest uh, child was not killed. Egypt did not have this word. And so not a house, it says in the book of Exodus, not a house in Egypt didn't have someone dead. And so a great wailing went forth. And eventually Pharaoh allows the children of Israel to leave. Of course, he changes his mind later. And the great uh, scene at the, de- at, the, not the Dead Sea, at the Red Sea, when Moses uh, parts the water, God makes a way for his people to go over on dry land and they are delivered. They are saved. They are rescued. And so this is the moment that Israel looks back on. It is the moment they became a nation. It is the moment that they escaped slavery. And so they commemorate it, uh, because God told them to, with the Passover meal. And so every year in the spring, Israelites would celebrate the Passover, or they were supposed to. Um, We actually see that they celebrate it in the wilderness uh, one year later. We see in the book of Joshua that they celebrate it once they've crossed over the Jordan into the land. And again, as I said, they, they, cel- they celebrate it other times in, um, while, when they're in the land. The Passover is a one-night event, and the rest of the week after is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so they were not allowed to have any leaven inside of their homes. In fact, there was an inspection that had to happen. <laughs> they went through their homes and removed all of the leaven out. And so for the rest of the week... They baked unleavened bread. This was also a commemoration of the Exodus event when they didn't have time to leaven their bread. So they had to make their bread quickly. Therefore, it was unleavened. So every aspect of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread is a reminder. It's a remembrance. It's a feast of celebration. It is a feast of looking back at what God had done. You can read more about the Passover in Exodus 12 and 13. Um, in Leviticus 23, in Numbers 9 and 28, De- Deuteronomy 16, it's repeated so that the children of God will not forget the command to celebrate the Passover. And so in the story, Jesus, a good Jew, a pious Jew, a law-abiding Jew, is headed to Jerusalem, just like every Jewish male was supposed to do. All the males, uh, adult males were supposed to head to Jerusalem three times a year for feasts. This is one of them. And they converged on Jerusalem in order to celebrate the Passover. See, they couldn't celebrate it wherever they wanted. So this was not Halloween, Thanksgiving, and Christmas when you do your decorations in your house and everyone has their own individual decorations. No, this is everyone went to the same place to celebrate as a nation, as a people together. 
So they're going into Jerusalem to do this. It is the, the, the backdrop to the entire scene is that it's Passover. So never forget in the weeks ahead as we move through this that Jerusalem is packed with people. Just packed. We estimate that at the time about 30,000 people, 30, people lived in Jerusalem. Um, and at the time of the Passover, it could swell to as many as 150,000, maybe 200,000 people. So, I mean, just a massive amount of people. There's tent cities all around um, Jerusalem. If you live in the city, maybe you can stay. If, you're, if you have relatives in the city, maybe you can stay with your relatives. Um, but the city is packed. Business is booming. There's people everywhere. It is a time of celebration. This is the backdrop to everything. And in that time of celebration, what are we, intru- what are we introduced to? A murder plot. A murder plot by the leaders of the people. The leaders of the people are supposed to be leading in celebration. And instead, they're huddled in meetings trying to kill a Galilean Jew who they don't like, are envious of, and fear. Look at verse 2. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. For they feared the people. What does that mean? It doesn't mean they, they wanted to put him to death because they feared the people. They wanted to put him to death, but they couldn't figure out a time to do it because they were afraid of the people. They couldn't just do it willy-nilly. They couldn't do it whenever they wanted to. Um, it is also a time of, of patriotic fervor for these people that are under the boot of Rome. This is a reminder of their independence. This is one of their independence days. And you can imagine the Romans were always on edge at this time of year um, when revolt could happen. And here we have a massive amount of people, many of them following Jesus. All week long, he's been teaching the temple, drawing crowds. And they're trying to find a time to put him to death, a way to do it in secret. If they wanted to do it in secret, this is the worst time of year to do it. Verse 3, what's behind all this? The better question is, who's behind all this? It is Satan himself. Satan's name means adversary in Hebrew, and he is the adversary of God and his people. We haven't heard from Satan since chapter 4, when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. I want you to turn back to Luke chapter 4 very briefly. I want to point something out to you. Luke 4, verse 1, begins the temptation of Jesus, and Satan famously tempts Jesus three different ways. And each time Jesus quotes Deuteronomy, back to Satan. He does not give in to the temptation. For our sake, he is perfect. In verse 13, after he is rejected for the last time, it says this. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And then we don't hear about Luke at all. I mean, Luke. <laughs> we don't hear at all about Satan in the rest of Luke. Until chapter 22. So Satan has stayed in the shadows. He stayed on the sideline, biding his time until Passover. So Satan entered Judas. What does that mean? <laughs> um, we've, we've seen demon-possessed people throughout the book of Luke that Jesus has healed. Uh, many times they have superhuman strength. Many times the demons actually speak through uh, the person. Um, and so it seems that in some of these cases that, that, that it was not the actual voice of the person, but a, a, a demon um, using the person's body to, to make the sounds, to speak. And so it was recognizably um, a, a demonic force. And, and yet here, it seems to be something a little bit different. Uh, the, word is, the word is entering. Is it possession? Is it control? Yes, something like that. But it is not something where Judas loses his um, 
his agency. He does not lose his ability to, to speak, to think, to feel, to move, to act. Um, and it is not obvious, clearly, to anybody else that Satan has entered him. Satan goes through um, this in, in a, a very cloaked way. Um, Judas is an actor, but Satan is the force behind his action. And, but we'll see, Judas is still responsible for his actions here. Now, there, there is, this is the place where we can kind of go off the rails and maybe speculate a lot. And I don't think there's, we, we should not speculate too much here. The text is given to us for what is in it. Not so that we might use it to speculate a bunch and come up with some crazy theories. What, we, what do we know? Satan enters Judas. What do we know that happens after that? Well, verse 4, he goes and he confers with the leaders and they come up with a negotiation and he agrees to betray. Now, um, there's, no, there, there's no specifics here about the money. It, it's just said that there is some money. Okay, we know from the other gospels that there are 30 coins of silver. But I think I have a picture of that. Do I have a picture of that? Um, here are some of the actual uh, coins found uh, in a nearby place in the Middle East that are some of the temple coins that, that would have been used. Um, it, it, it was probably a, a fairly good chunk of money. It wasn't going to make Judas rich for the rest of his life, but it was a comfortable amount of money. And you notice the the uh, emotions that are present at this meeting in verse 5, they were what? They were glad. Another word there is they rejoiced. The irony here is that as they, they speak of uh, the Passover lamb being slain so that the, the children of Israel could go free, is that the lamb is among them and they want to kill him. This is full of irony because they in their wickedness and in their utter um, opposition to God and his plans are going to fulfill God's plan. In the, the deep irony and the, in the amazing doctrine of the sovereignty of God, man works underneath God's will. This is an amazing thing. So verse 6, Judas consents and he sought an opportunity. Now notice, Satan is, has entered Judas and now Judas seeks an opportunity to betray him. The last time we saw Satan was in Luke 4 and he waited until he could find an opportunity. And here is the opportunity. The opportunity is a, is a fantastic one. Right? Betrayal can only come from someone who's close. Someone you don't know doesn't betray you. Only someone that you know betrays you. So Satan gets into the inner circle. He gets Judas to consent to betray him. And they try to do it in an absence of a crowd. What is the setting? The setting needs to be no crowds around. So who better to know Jesus' itinerary than one of the twelve to find a place where they might make the move. Uh, ju- just a, a caution here. You will note that proximity to Jesus does not guarantee a heart that loves Jesus. Proximity to Jesus does not guarantee a heart that loves Jesus. Judas spent three years with Jesus, and he was the one who betrayed him. Look at your heart. Beware, be watchful, be careful that you love Jesus. Point number two, Jesus is Lord of the details. Jesus is Lord of the details. Verses 7 through 13 um, are dominated by the word prepare. It's used four different times. Prepare, 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 prepare. They are preparing for the Passover, and Jesus gives Peter and John a special mission, and that is to go into the city and find a place 
to celebrate it. There were specific rules about how to celebrate uh, Passover. And so Peter and John needed to go into the city and secure a location for this to happen. Peter and John uh, asked where to do it. And verse 10 is interesting. Jesus says to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. <laughs> it sounds like a spy movie, right? When you get into the city, a guy wearing a red cap, will, you know, there's a man with a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. And, and, and this is where we don't see this. Like, are you, are you serious? Like walk into a, a city that has like a ton of tens of thousands of extra people here and look for a guy with a jar of water? <laughs> what? There, there's a, a one really good explanation that helps us understand this. And it is, it seems from uh, the time that only women would have held a jar of water um, for one of two reasons, or maybe both. Um, one was that it was a woman's job to grab the water, and that was just the division of labor among the Jews at the time. And so if you spotted a man with a jar, that was not uh, something that you would see very often. Another thing that we see from some of the literature of the day is that it seems like, and we don't, I, don't, I couldn't find why this is, but it seems like m- women used jars and men used like leather skins. I don't know why. I, I tried to find the why. I have no idea why. Um, but this is what makes this the, like a good uh, key is that it's going to be very obvious when you see a man carrying a jar of water. Okay, so this would stand out to Peter and John there to see the guy. Then they follow him, which is a little bit creepy. Right? Zero in on the guy. Right. And they follow him to the house. He's apparently just a servant. Because when they get there in verse 11, he tells the master of the house, can you imagine going to this house? You've never been there before. You walk up and you say, the teacher needs your house. <laughs> I mean, at some point you're going to be like, are they going to reject us? Are they going to like laugh at us and send us away? The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the, the Passover with my disciples? And then Jesus tells them what the answer will be. And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. It all happened just as Jesus has said. I don't want to belabor this point, um, but Jesus is in control of the details. He, he is not a desperate, on-the-run fugitive. Um, he has come to Jerusalem publicly, and he has taught, he has sparred with the various leaders, and now he is orchestrating all of the details here. He is Lord over the details. Now, some say um, that this is Jesus just knowing the future and sending his disciples, and that very well could be the, pl- the point. Uh, other people say that perhaps Jesus prearranged this, um, and so that he had already spoken to the master, and that Peter and John were going to go in and recognize it, and was trying to keep things quiet so they could celebrate the Passover. Either way, by the way, if either either way or both, <laughs> um, Jesus is still in charge of the details. <laughs> um, if, if Jesus prepared it in advance, that still means he's in charge of the details and he's planning carefully how this day will go. This shows you how Jesus cares about what's about to happen. Jesus cares about what is about to happen. I'll go ahead and look um, at the next chunk of verses, verses 14 through 18. Jesus' last supper for now. Jesus' last supper for now. It says, and when the hour came, and that's like a, a, a double-sided meaning there. I think it's the hour when you did this, when you celebrated Passover, but also the hour 
has come for Jesus. This is not emphasized in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but in John, it is emphasized that his time has not come. Jesus says, my time has not come, my time has not come, my time has not come. The time has come. The hour has come. And so the Passover is ready. Um, Peter and John worked hard to get the details. This means they needed to get a lamb. They needed to get some bitter herbs. They needed to purchase some wine. They probably needed to help with some of the furniture and the cleanup and getting ready for this uh, Passover. They needed to get everything ready, and they're ready, and now it is time to go. Now, you'll notice that what Jesus says in verse 15, just his first few words, reveal something to us. Look at verse 15. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired. I have earnestly desired. Notice that the Lord of the details is not absent from them. He is fully immersed in the details. So that he is not just um, over here just playing chess game, moving stuff around. Jesus is intimately involved in the details in a way that involves his emotions. So Jesus is not um, this this big-brained robot who's just making things happen. Jesus is deeply involved in these things. He's emotionally invested in what's happening. He earnestly desired. Maybe some of your versions say eagerly or fervently desired. Uh, the Greek says, he, he, um, desi- with desire I have desired. It's the same word twice in a row. It's, uh, it's actually what they did in Hebrew a lot. It's to emphasize something, you just put two words in a row. It's like really, really. Okay? You put it together and it, it makes it uh, more forceful. Jesus really, really wanted to celebrate this with his disciples. Now, I want you to remember, as you see this, what Jesus did several chapters earlier when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Elijah. Do you remember that? Jesus takes Peter and John and James up to the mountain, and uh, Moses and Elijah show up. Jesus' clothes, his appearance are bright, shiny, radiation, and... um, It's an amazing scene showing all of Jesus' glory that is veiled most of the time. When Jesus was on the mountain with Elijah and Moses, um, Luke says that they spoke. They had a conversation. Like, hey guys, it's been a while. (laughs) Welcome to earth. Okay, And they begin to speak. They begin to talk. And it says they began to talk about his departure, which was about, he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The word for departure is exodus. The Greek word for departure is exodus. They were speaking of Jesus' exodus that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Again, this is all planned. This is all planned. Jesus spoke with Moses and Elijah about this. Now, listen, what are they doing in Jerusalem? They're celebrating the exodus. They're celebrating the exodus of the Israelites leaving Egypt. What is Jesus' exodus going to be? What is this? Jesus is going to... Well, what did the exodus do? It affected a salvation for God's people. What is Jesus' exodus going to do? It's going to affect salvation for God's people. Such a great salvation that it will replace the Passover meal with another meal. This is very, very interesting. Jesus is reclining at table, verse 14, which probably means they were either on low couches, um, laying around the table, probably in like a U shape, or they might have even been on the floor, on the ground with mats or rugs. Um, And this is generally how they ate the Passover. Now, this is not how the law says to eat the Passover, um, but the rabbis and the leaders had changed it because the law told them to 
practice the Passover with their belt on, their sandals on, like they're ready to go, reenacting the moment of leaving Egypt. What had changed is that over the years, the Israelites had said, you know what? We are in our land. God brought us to our land. We're going to enjoy the Passover meal now. So um, they, they, they reclined around the meal as they ate. They, they reclined like people who belong there. And so they recline around the table and they begin to celebrate the Passover. Now the order of how everything works here is going to get a little bit convoluted, but the point is not that we know every single detail of how the Passover went. The point is what Jesus is saying and doing in celebrating the Passover. Look at verse 15 again. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen. He's already told his disciples at least three times what's coming. And then he brings this one on them. Verse 16, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And look at verse 18. You skip down there. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Both of those I will nots are, are uh, emphasized in the Greek language. It's not just I'm not going to. Um, it's more like I certainly will not. Uh, There's a double negative. I definitely am not going to eat this. I definitely am not going to drink this until when? Until it is fulfilled in the kingdom. Until the kingdom of God comes. Now this, should, uh, this is a little bit of a hint to the disciples. He says he's about to suffer and he says he'll drink it again with them when the kingdom comes. So we can't really fault the disciples too much in Luke's next book, in the sequel, okay, that comes after the, be- the first bestseller. In chapter 1 of the sequel, they, they go to the mountain and the disciples say, is, is it time for the kingdom now? Time for the kingdom? Okay, because they're, they're hearing Jesus' words here. They're hearing him and they're trying to figure out the timing. This is interesting. This is Jesus not only speaking of what is to come in the near future, his death and his resurrection, but speaking about what is to come at the end of time when he returns again and establishes his kingdom. We just talked about this, Pastor Ron did in in chapter 21, the, the near and the far prophecies and trying to figure this all out. Jesus is giving some more clues here. This is why Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians that we observe the Lord's Supper until he comes. This is what we're waiting for. And it appears that Jesus is promising a feast in the kingdom. So he says, I'm not going to do this until we do this again together in the kingdom of God. This is a promise that one day all those who have believed in Jesus will feast with him. Perhaps he's referring to Isaiah 25 verses 6 through 9, which Isaiah prophesied and said this. On this mountain, referring to Jerusalem, Yahweh of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. That sounds a whole lot like what Jesus is promising. Revelation 19 sounds similar as well. The marriage supper of the lamb. All of those who have been invited to the marriage supper of the lamb will at Jesus' return feast with him. And now we get into the weeds. Is it symbolic? Is it literal? 
Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Why wouldn't this be literal? Why would you explain this away? With, of course it's symbolic. Of course there's symbols here. Aren't there symbols all over your table at your Christmas dinner and your Thanksgiving dinner? There, there's symbols everywhere. That we, can't, we don't need to divorce them. We can bring them together. I think we're going to enjoy uh, meals with Jesus in the kingdom of God. Looking forward to that. Perfect food <laughs> with the king. That will be a good day. Now, what's interesting about Luke is Luke introduces a, a, something that's a little bit confusing. And there's two cups. I don't know if you noticed that. There's two cups here. Um, the, the rest of the Gospels only refer to one cup and uh, one loaf of bread. And that might be confusing until we understand the Passover meal traditionally had four cups of wine. So which, which of the four are these two? <laughs> a lot of the scholars are trying to figure it out. Some say the first and the third. Some say the second and the fourth. Some say the second and the third. They're, yep, they're cups. Okay? I think what Jesus is doing is he's taking the Passover cups and he is borrowing and then transforming um, the Passover meal into the Lord's Supper, which we're about to partake of. So it might be the first cup, the cup of blessing in verse 17 that we see because Jesus gives thanks and there would have been a traditional thanksgiving um, when that cup is um, passed around. And then, then we have the bread in verse, um, I just lost it, verse 19, thank you. Okay, and then we have another cup in verse 20, which is probably the third or the fourth cup. The third cup was drunk after the main course and then the last cup ended the meal. Whatever the case, um, we're not sure. Um, but Jesus is making a new meal out of a 1,500-year-old one. <laughs> He's taking an ancient recipe and making something new. Now, at this point, Jesus gives thanks. And this is where many church traditions get their name for the Lord's sup- Supper, called the Eucharist. It's just taken straight from the Greek word eucharisteo, which means to give thanks. And so um, some churches call this the Eucharist. How many of you grew up calling it the Eucharist? Several of you, okay. Um, and other names for the Lord's Supper, there's the Eucharist, there's the Lord's Table, um, is often called because it was celebrated on a table, okay. Um, communion or, or Holy Communion, depending on the tradition. Um, and if you grew up Roman Catholic, you celebrated the Mass, okay. So there are some other names for the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, the Lord's Table, Communion or Holy Communion, and the mass. Now, in verses 19 and 20, we see in our next point that the old gives way to the new. The old gives way to the new. And Jesus here takes the bread and he reinterprets what it means. He breaks the bread, he hands it out to the disciples and says, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, let's just be really clear. Jesus is right there at the table. Okay? He's, right, he's handing it out. They don't need to remember him. He's right there. Does that make sense? When are they going to need to remember him? When he's not right there. <laughs> okay? In the future. All right? That, the other thing that I think is clear, and I think that this is where Protestants differ with Roman Catholics, is that uh, Roman Catholics say that when, when Jesus said, this is my body, that he identifies the bread as his body, his actual body. And that's what happens um, at a mass, uh, when the priest says the words, the, the bread and the wine become the actual body and blood of Jesus. We also know that, that the word is can function as a representation and not just an equal sign. Okay? Um, 
I, I think this is clear because Jesus is there. The, the bread is not Jesus' body because Jesus' body is his body. Okay? Um, that's not like the best like slam dunk argument, right? Like, right? But we're not trying to do a mic drop here anyway, right? We're not trying to, we're trying to see what the text says and take our practice from the text. I think that is, this is my body, is representation, not identification. It is representation. This bread represents my body. There are all kinds of representative symbols in Jewish uh, worship, as there are in basically every kind of worship. There are symbols that are used. So the bread represents Jesus' body, and he breaks it, right? Okay, so then the cup comes next, and Jesus says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Whoa! (laughs) We got a very important word there, covenant. And Jesus says this is the new covenant. Now, if you have been reading in the book of Jeremiah recently, this will start setting off alarm bells. And for the disciples who would have known the Old Testament very well, they would have remembered that in Jeremiah chapter 31, the prophet promised a new covenant. So listen, Jesus is not totally overthrowing Judaism with a gleeful look on his face. Ha ha, this is all stupid stuff. Now I got some new things for you. He is fulfilling it and he is transforming it. So if you want to later today, look at Jeremiah 31, 31. That's an easy one to remember. Jeremiah 31, 31. Um, Yahweh, through the prophet Jeremiah, promises a new covenant to come. And I'll just point out some things that is said in that, that new covenant. What will it be like? It will be like uh, this. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Forgiveness of sins is at the center of the new covenant. It was promised hundreds of years before and now... It is coming to fulfillment in Jesus himself as he... By the way, this is a radical statement. This is really an arrogant statement that Jesus is going to mess with 1,500 years of history and tradition, God's word, and just kind of change the meal. (laughs) You don't do that unless you're crazy, okay? Or you know what you're doing, right? I mean, what happens when you mess with people's traditions, by the way, right? (laughs) You don't mess with traditions flippantly. I know we've done this like every year since grandma was little, but (laughs) not this year. Uh, You're in trouble, right? So how much more so in changing God's word? Okay, Jesus is representing a hinge of history as history moves into what's happening with Jesus. Jesus is the center of history and history is moving with him. Now we, we have to finish this. Look at verses 21 through 23. Right at this, this, this climax of fellowship, Jesus then puts a huge damper on the mood and says, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. What? Excuse me? Jesus is saying, someone at this table is going to betray me. And in, in, in the moment, in that, in that week, when everybody knows the leadership hates Jesus, when the disciples have already felt this for three years, someone's going to betray you? In verse 22, Jesus basically says this, it had to happen, but it's not good for the person that made it happen. And here we get a balance of God's complete sovereignty over his creation, over history, over details, over times, Balanced with still man's responsibility. In the mystery of God's will, this was all planned out, and yet Judas doesn't get a pass. 
Judas doesn't get a pass on this. Judas is responsible for his betrayal. His betrayal is wicked. It is not the the actions of a robot who is pre-programmed to betray. And yet, Jesus wasn't like, oh man, I don't know, how, how's, someone's going to betray me? How am I going to make this work? God's not up in heaven going, Jesus, I hope you can pull this off. Jesus confidently has planned the, the, the details and he knows, think of the emotional toll of this, he knows one of his closest friends is going to betray him. Now Luke handles this differently than the other Gospels. He leaves some details out for his own purposes. In verse 23, they began to question one another which, one of, them, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Notice, they didn't know it was Judas. The disciples didn't look at Judas and go, I bet that guy's going to betray us all. They gave Judas the money. He was the treasurer. But you, you give the money to the trusted guy. This is terrifying. Paul told the elders at the church of Ephesus, wolves are going to come from where? From within you. Not from the outside, from inside the church. So be careful, be on guard. Pray for our elders. That is our responsibility. To guard the church, to guard the doctrine of the church. This is a scary thing. Betrayal from a close friend. Now I want to cover two more things in about 30 seconds. (laughs) That was a joke. Um, on your notes, you'll see what is happening when we celebrate communion. I want to I briefly uh, mention this. I'm going to go too fast for you to take notes, probably. What is happening when we celebrate communion? The Roman Catholic view is transubstantiation, which is a big fancy word that is really hard to spell. Thank God for spell check. That says the elements are actually changed into the actual body and blood of Jesus, who is sacrificed again on the altar for his people when the priest speaks the words. And it is effective for people, no matter what their state of mind is, no matter what their heart is, no matter if they have faith or not, just by the virtue of accepting Jesus' body and blood, it has an effect on the person. We reject that view. The Lutheran view is often called consubstantiation, and Martin Luther had a hard time explaining this, and so I probably will too. Jesus is actually present, similar to the Roman Catholic view, in, with, and under the elements. That's a quote from Luther. I didn't come up with that because that's confusing. In, with, and under the elements. That when faith is exercised, Jesus is actually present in the elements. He doesn't, the elements don't become Jesus, like in the Roman Catholic view, but Jesus is mystically in, with, and under the elements. Okay? The Presbyterian and Reformed view is the spiritual presence. And so this is Presbyterians, Reformed, from um, a certain stream of, of Christianity. Jesus is spiritually present. There's nothing to do with his body like the Lutherans and the Roman Catholics think. He's spiritually present when the elements are taken in faith. That Jesus is spiritually present with the elements. And the Baptistic view, also Anabaptists and Mennonites would hold to the memorial view, and so would our church, that Jesus is not present in the elements. He is remembered, worshipped, and anticipated by his followers. That is not to say that we take this a whole lot less seriously than other denominations. We do take this seriously. In fact, our Constitution says Village Bible Church regularly celebrates the Lord's Supper in obedience to Christ's command, do this in remembrance of me. We're obeying a command of Jesus. We want to recognize the body of Christ. And so our Constitution says this, 
While the Lord's Supper is open to all those who profess Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord, we encourage participants to not take the ordinance of the Lord's Supper lightly, but to partake with a clear conscience. And we would extend that to all of you as well today. Five last points, and I totally ripped this off of Pastor Ron's sermon from 2015 from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which is available on our website, and I listened to it last night. I thought, why try to recreate the wheel when, when Ron made a really good wheel? What should we do while we celebrate communion? So I, I, mean, I want to talk about what we're about to do. So what should we do in three minutes? <laughs> in three minutes, this is what we should do. We should look at Jesus. We don't have a picture of Jesus. That's not what I'm talking about. We focus on Jesus. We think about what he has done for us. We look forward to when Jesus comes again. We look outward to those who do not celebrate this because they don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We look inward, like Paul said, to examine ourselves, to make sure that we are right with the Lord. And then we look around. Communion is union together, union with. We do it together. So as the elders come forward, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I say that word with purpose. We're celebrating the Lord's Supper. Communion, holy communion, the Eucharist. We're giving thanks joyfully for what God has done. We're examining ourselves solemnly because we are sinners. We are remembering Jesus Because how much he loved us and gave himself for us. We are praying, Lord, your kingdom come. And then we need to live like this is true. Like Jesus' body actually was broken for us. Like his blood was poured out for us like the lamb that was slain. Jesus is the Passover lamb. So what should you do right now? We should not distract others around us. We should not take a nap. We should actively labor, work to do those things, to examine ourselves and to take the Lord's Supper in a solemn and celebratory way. Two things, right? Like at a wedding, it's a very, it's a very serious event. It's a very solemn thing, but it is a very happy event. And so is this. Jesus died on the cross. That is a, that is a very... Very sad event. Jesus died on the cross. That is a very happy event because he died in our place. Let's celebrate now. So we get to practice the sermon right after it was preached. And usually, Pastor Ron and I and AJ would read from 1 Corinthians, but I want to stay in the text today, which is a slightly different phraseology. But it says this, and he took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and gave it to them saying this is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me what did the disciples think when they when they were there i don't know what they thought but they got to practice this and we get to practice this as we think of jesus's body broken for us and in a a meal so full of meaning They had a lamb there on the table in front of them that had been slaughtered. Its blood had been poured out into a cup. Jesus takes a cup and says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And this pictures the gospel. We're acting out the gospel right here. 
that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and that he rose again and triumphed over Satan, sin, and death. So we drink the cup in celebration until he comes again. In the book of Revelation, when the story all ends, there's a lamb that looks like it's been slain, yet somehow still alive. And the 24 elders fall down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And that's our future. And that's the future that many people don't know. And that's why we need to tell everyone that we know of this good news.